Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's episode is my producer, Sari Soffer. Hi, Jen. So this week's episode is all about the disproportionate effects of caretaking responsibilities on women. Our guest is my friend and former colleague, Sandra Apravaya, whose husband, Brian Wallach, was diagnosed with ALS after they had their second child in 2017. And the two of them started an organization called I Am ALS, which is a resource for patients and families but also connects people to policymakers to help promote laws and programs for patients and caregivers. So let's get to it. Sandra Apavaya, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thank you for having me. So you're not just a guest, you're a good friend. We worked together in the Obama White House. Yeah. And we had some intense times together. It was great, though. You are an amazing boss. Oh, that's so nice. And I also got to work with Brian at the time when he was in the council's office, also known as the hot guy that looks like Don Henley. (laughs) I was always a little terrified how you felt about the fact that my boyfriend worked in the same office. Like, Really? Yeah, I was a little bit like nervous about it because it felt different from the campaign. It was like oh, an official it was more, it was job. government. Yeah, right. It's right. government. The, yeah. He was the White House Counsel's office. It's a big deal. Yeah. Well, and then you'd be like, I had a meeting with Brian today. And I'd be like, oh. <laughs> and I'd be like, I hope he didn't mess up. Like he's repping for both of us. He's always so on it and professional and, you know, brilliant and everything like that. But then had a nice, good bedside manner for a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> That's what reeled me in, his bedside manner. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so impressed with I am ALS, and I want to spend some time talking about that work as well. Yeah. I think you know my sister died of early onset Alzheimer's, so I have experience in, you know, tough diseases with very tough diagnoses and not enough support when it comes to research, clinical trials, approval of drugs, etc. That's sort of a parallel experience. And you guys just do phenomenal work. Thank you. So let's start with tell us your story. I mean, I remember you coming to see me in my tiny little office in the West Wing and saying that you were going to leave. Uh, you and Brian were going to get married and you wanted to run an education nonprofit. So tell us, you know, what you thought the trajectory your life was on and the turn it took. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the order of operations, but he proposed. And a week later, I was like, and I really want to take this job in Chicago. Let's go to Chicago. (laughs) And he's like, but we both have jobs at the White House. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that was sort of, we're going to move closer to my family. I was going to kind of pivot in my career into this sector. And we were going to start a family. Yeah. And you did it. We did. (laughs) And Brian had his dream job as an assistant U.S. attorney working on violent crime and gangs. Yeah. I mean, our small bungalow in Chicago felt like it was out of an episode of The Wire. It was one of his dream jobs. So we were definitely living it all up and out to the fullest. I've heard you talk about the diagnosis when you found out that Brian had ALS, and you always speak of it, as you say, when we were diagnosed. I mean, it really is something that happened to both of us. And while I say that, I acknowledge that I 
can never pretend to understand what it feels like to be the person who's told they don't have much longer to live. That is certainly an entirely different vantage point, but the disease itself has rocked both of us to our core in every way. And it really does end up being a diagnosis for a family. And it happened right after your second daughter was born, right? You were still in the hospital after having given birth when you realized something was, or at least Brian realized something was really wrong with him. Well, and what's weird about it is that at the time he had this cough and I was worried that that cough was something we needed to look into. And he had never even said anything about his left hand feeling weak or cramping. I mean, for the last year or, you know, more or less, he had been taking on the lion's share of like the housework and helping with our two-year-old because I was really tired from the second pregnancy. And Mm -hmm. so he was just like, oh, I'm just working really hard on this gang and violent crime stuff. And I have a two-year-old and a pregnant wife. Right. Stress is showing up in weird places. My hand isn't functioning the way it used to. It must be some kind of nervous thing. Exactly. So it was only when he went in because I was urging him to do so because of the cough that he then, you know, said all the things that might be relevant in the doctor appointment. And then it became these other things and not the cough that were really relevant. I've heard you talk about the day that you found out, which sounds like not a normal day because you just brought your daughter home, but you're annoyed with Brian because he said like (laughs) some security people to put like alarms in or something to your house, probably because of his work, I would imagine, right? Is that why you had security yeah, I was a little bit. You're yeah. like freaked out and you're like mad. <laughs> just like something Jim would do. Like all of a sudden somebody shows up to work on the furnace and he hasn't told me. And then you call him to say, what's going on? And what does he tell you then? Well, he was really quiet. And when I asked him if everything was okay, he said it wasn't. And, you know, from working with Brian and from just knowing him generally, like Brian never says anything is ever wrong, even when things are. Sure, wrong. we'll figure it out. Right. Yeah. 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 Brian's favorite phrase is the good news is. So, I mean, (laughs) for Brian to answer in that way, just stopped me in my tracks. And so I was just begging him to tell me what was wrong. And he said, no, I'm not going to talk about this over the phone. I'm on my way home and we'll talk about this when I get home. How long was it till you were able to actually lay eyes on him? I can't, you know. It was 20 minutes of pacing, just pacing in that living room. My heart stopped. I had no idea. It was like this hot August day and it was my friend Haley's birthday. I like just remember weird things about the day and he pulled up and I ran outside, even though the girls were both babies and sleeping inside. I just ran Mm -hmm. outside into the car and his friend was on the speaker phone uh, in the car and it was his friend, Nick, who's a neurologist. Mm. And he was talking to Nick about the doctor's appointment. And I had no idea. And I said, Nick, 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 this is Sandra. I got in the car. I need you guys to hang up because I don't even know what's going on. Oh my God. Yeah. And Brian said that the doctor told him that he very likely had ALS. And I had no idea what that meant. But of course, I'm, as everyone is in a casual way, familiar with the ice bucket challenge. And I knew it was a very tough disease, but I thought, oh my gosh, there was this huge investment. Right. They made progress. Like, okay. Immediately, you're looking for the thing that's going to tell you that this can be okay. Literally, that is the first thing I said. I said, oh, it's, it's okay. It's not that bad, right? And Brian said, it actually is really bad. 
And he said that the doctor said that it was possible that he had six months left to live. And that was in 2018? 17. Four years. Yes. And look, here we are four years later, and I am just, I mean, grateful is not a word that can capture how I feel to say what it means to be alive still, but 75% of the people who were diagnosed that day are gone. And it's not anything special. We did. You know, ALS is very much a heterogeneous disease. There's different subtypes of it. And for a lot of us, when we get diagnosed and even throughout the journey, we don't really know whether we have a fast progressing or a slow progressing kind. And certainly as we learn more about the disease, there's more and more clarity about that sort of thing. But we had no idea what version of it we would have. You know, when I heard it, it just seemed so impossible because I thought this was a disease that was so rare. And it's really not that rare. One in 300 people get it. Is that right? Yeah. And it's essentially the same incidence rate as MS. And the reason why we all know a lot of people who have MS, but we don't know a lot of people who have ALS is because it kills people so quickly. Oh, my God. Sari's mom has MS. Yeah. I'm sorry. Which I know is like one of your big concerns. I mean, she is the daughter that grew up from a very young age, right, yep. Sari? Yeah. How old were you and your mom was diagnosed? My mom was diagnosed actually right after she had me. So I'm the oldest. Wow. It's me and my brother. After she had me, some things were popping up that were concerning to her, mostly her vision, actually, in the beginning. And then she was diagnosed very shortly after. So you've lived with it your whole life. I've lived with it my whole life. And I mean, everything about raising your children and like how much you tell them, how much you don't tell them. I feel like I've been in a constant battle with both my parents for that. They love to be very hopeful and optimistic and shelter me and make sure that it doesn't affect my life too much. And Obviously, I just want to first off say, you know, it's nothing like ALS. It's a very slow progression. My mom is awesome, very strong, very headstrong and very physically strong. I've seen photos. I can attest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she's amazing. So they've sheltered a lot for me. And like when I was young, I felt like, you know, it doesn't really affect me that much. And then as I got older, they would continue to hide things from me. Like, you know, I'd go away to college and then I'd get back and she'd be in a wheelchair and I'd be like, why don't you tell me she was not doing well? So I just have a lot of questions about, you know, I thought you put it really well. I was listening to a podcast you were on that you're honest. It's honesty with hope. Like, how do you approach that honesty with hope with your girls? I know they're younger too. Yeah. And for a a while, it was really hard for us to figure out like, what is the right time that you even have a conversation? Mm -hmm. Because when our oldest daughter was two and our youngest daughter was just a newborn, I mean, obviously that's not the right time to have a conversation about the fact that a parent's been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And so we have been thinking a lot as a family. And then we began to talk to a grief and illness institute in Chicago that supports families that deal with really serious illness about when is a good quote unquote time to talk to your young children about the situation and how do you frame it? And so honestly, it was just during COVID that we explained to the girls that daddy has ALS. Mm. Until then, they were just wondering why daddy uses a walking stick or sometimes he stumbles on a word and he fell a couple times. But we just said, you know, some people have trouble walking or he just 
sometimes loses his balance. We never connected it to a disease. So Mm -hmm. we first had that conversation at the beginning of COVID where it really started to physically disable him in a very apparent way. And then maybe four or five months later, we had the conversation with our then five-year-old, look, daddy's walking and talking. That's because he has a disease called ALS. And ALS is really hard and it's going to make it probably harder and harder for daddy to do these things. And then I said, like the hardest part, which I didn't even know what I was saying when I was saying it, I just blurted it out. I said, and sometimes it kills people. And she immediately said, sometimes or always, our five-year-old. And I said, always so far. And mommy and daddy and a lot of people are working really, really hard to find medicines so that even if people have ALS, they can live with it. So... I mean, yeah, that's the honesty with hope that I just found. So like, I got chills when you said that. That is your daughter, Sandra, who's saying sometimes <laughs> or always. <laughs> Words matter. Right. <laughs> How would you say they're doing, Sandra? I mean, our three-year-old is, thank goodness, a little bit of the Brian happy-go-lucky. Uh, oh, sweet. <laughs> and honestly, she doesn't know a different version of Brian, right? She can't remember the Brian who threw, you know, a ball or rode a bike. Like that's not something she mourns. Mm -hmm. That's not part of her memory. But for our oldest daughter, she does say a lot when the medicine starts working, when daddy's ALS goes away, then he's going to play with me again outside or ride a bike. Even though she was only three or two at the time that he was diagnosed, she still remembers that. It took a couple years for the... Progression. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is it progression is what we talk about. Yeah. I hate the word progression. Better than deterioration. People use it. Isn't that what they're avoiding? (laughs) Isn't they're avoiding deterioration? I mean, but like, that's progression in ALS speak is deterioration. And so when people use the word progression, just like, does it make it casually? I'm like, oh, I hate that word. It makes me want to throw up in my mouth. Oh, (laughs) when people use it in real life. (laughs) Time to pay some bills. After the break, we're going to talk about Sandra's role as caregiver. She's very honest about how hard it can be and how COVID made it even harder. That's next on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with my friend, Sandra Apravaya, who I worked with in the Obama administration, also with her husband, Brian, who was diagnosed with ALS in 2017. I want you to tell us like, what a typical day for you and Brian is like, you caring for him, living with this disease. And you know, you've already said that like you don't like the word progression because it's like happy talk for what's really happening. And you know, when people talk about their, so how amazing Sandra is, she's so amazing, how much love she has for Brian, how she does all this with love. And you're like, this sucks. Caregiving sucks. 
it's really hard and it's like soul crushing and it has become your whole life and like it's so important I think that you share that and I know you've said this like that you don't shield Brian from that either because yeah we got diagnosed with this we are in this together (laughs) so like tell us what a day is like yeah I mean when he wakes up in the morning I come over to his side of the bed and I take the BiPAP off, which is a breathing machine. And then I have to hold both his arms Mm -hmm. to help sit him up. And then as his legs come over the side of the bed, I straddle them and use them and I kind of leverage and pull him up. Honestly, sometimes I'm afraid to tell people or show people what it looks like because I'm sure I'm breaking every rule in the book. Like, no, you need this device (laughs) to do this thing. Like, Oh my gosh, did you see what Sandra's doing to Brian? She's like literally the worst caregiver. Let's judge Sandra on her caregiving. Oh, no, no, no. For real, I'm really nervous that people will judge like what I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you help him set up and then get him coffee and water and look like when he's seated at a table or a desk, he can sort of manage to lift the cup up to his mouth. But like in the morning, he's especially weak. And so I'll hold the coffee and the water up to his lips. It's really hard to help someone drink water even. Yeah. And then like, you don't know when to stop. And I'm like, give me a signal, man. And then usually like we end up yelling at each other. Like, and he's like, you're the worst. And I'm like, no, you're the worst. So like, you know, and then like, I'm not a very nice caregiver either. He'll be like, I just need one more thing. And I'm like, no, no. Like, (laughs) so I mean, it sounds like a partnership. And like getting through something that's really hard and a big pain in the neck for both of you. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate that a lot of people do use language like it's an honor to care for my person or I wouldn't have it any other way. I just don't feel that way. It's not an honor. And I would have it every other way with a cherry on top if I could. And I don't think Brian like is hurt by that. But again, every couple has their own language and that's just the way Brian and I communicate. Is he in pain? These are things I don't know. Yeah, no, he's not in pain. Glad to know that. He's just, yeah, getting weaker and weaker Mm -hmm. and able to do less and less. I've heard you say before, you you like help him into your office and he sits there all day and works. And what happens with the rest of your day? And what's he working on? Well, he is working around the clock, too. He works around the (laughs) clock. If you follow uh, that man on Twitter, (laughs) I mean, the word that keeps coming to mind with all of you, I mean, is relentless. Yeah, but, you know, I'll still get mad. Like last night, it was 10 p.m. And there are nights where he doesn't sleep through the night. So I don't sleep through the night. And then it's like, oh, my God, I have a newborn situation again. He's the newborn in this case, you mean? Yeah. Well, certainly. And, you know, when you have, ALS, like your body is so weak that it's hard to turn in the bed, right? So this last week, like I woke up every night. I I didn't sleep more than four hours a night. And I'm not good with that. Like I wasn't when I was a new mom. I'm not now. You weren't on a presidential campaign. You didn't like it then either. I wasn't on a presidential campaign. I am very cranky when I don't sleep. And so I was like, Last night, I mean, and he has such a heart, right? Like people are sharing on Twitter. A lot of what he does is he he just like wants to create an opening for other people to share their stories too. He does. He does a great job. Yeah. Well, last night it was like, Brian, you not putting away that cell phone shows that you don't respect my need to sleep, which means you don't respect me. Like, <laughs> so, 
shit gets real. Yeah. The marriage part of your partnership is very much alive because that sounds yeah. like a conversation Jim and I would have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about the kids? I mean, are you dealing with the children? You know, you have two young kids. It's COVID. You couldn't have people around. Brian, I know. Like, how has that been? Yeah. I mean, so many families who lost during COVID, nothing that we've experienced can be compared to that. But for people with very serious illnesses, we had to bubble up in the most intense way imaginable. And so that meant a million people outside of your circle want to help, but you can't accept any of that help. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, People even reach out to me and say, like, I don't understand why you're caregiving for Brian alone. Like, you're not qualified or it's a disservice to you or you need to watch out for yourself. But they're saying it in kind of like a feedbacky kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> not sure I asked for this feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I appreciate that. But ultimately, for us, I couldn't let a caregiver in the house because I could not expose Brian to the risk of someone coming and going. So COVID made it just overwhelming, right? Because I couldn't do the normal things you do when you're tackling a disease like this. And then at the same time, we had these two babies and neither of them can go to school. Right. And so we were without child care and caregiving support for the first six months of COVID. And Brian nose dove, dived, whatever. So we just tried to like piece it together, but it was a mess. It was so hard. You were caring for Brian, treating Brian, fighting ALS with the hope and expectation, hope that he will get better, right? I think a lot of people think they hear someone has ALS and they think this is about managing the rest of their life. This is not about fighting to save them. But I want to be clear with people, that is what you're in this to do. Absolutely. And I think we have to be clear with people that the disease and the science and the drugs in the pipeline are turning a corner. So this is a different ALS story than it was five years ago. And it's going to take a lot for people to get that, to hear that and to register that you don't hear about someone having ALS and just feel sad and tune out. This is the moment to jump in and be a part of helping us turn the corner faster because you know there are some incredible therapies for some of the genetic subtypes of ALS from SOD1 to C9 that are essentially stopping the disease in its tracks. For many people, we are at the precipice of making this a chronic disease. Making it a chronic disease as opposed to a terminal disease. Chronic disease in this case is the win. Yes. <laughs> this is what we are going for. We'll be in the White House be like, well, what is what does success look like in this case? Success in this case is a chronic illness, not a terminal illness. That's right. I mean, if we are in a wheelchair the rest of our lives, unable to do X, Y, and Z, like so be it. Just let us live. Like, we just want to live. Yeah. (laughs) That's the dream. We just want to live. Six months ago, you left your job to do this full time, right? Yeah. How hard was that? It was hard. (laughs) And, you know, it's like our, our our whole world, right? It's, I'm just like, I was so happy to see Kate and Jen and everybody like, 
the gang is back together. But then it was like my whole career fell away. What would have happened if not for you? What do other people do? What do people do who can't afford to quit? It's awful. I mean, there are so many things that made it possible for us to be doing what we're doing, right? First of all, Brian's firm, Skadden, where he actually was in the New York office, the DC office, and the Chicago office, they actually made him a job offer after he got diagnosed. You didn't tell them for six months, right? You were worried he was going to get fired. Well, he was at the U.S. Attorney's office at the time. And it wasn't anything about, I mean, the people at the U.S. Attorney's office are amazing, but we thought, oh my gosh, like they're just going to feel like he's not going to be capable of this job. And also we had seen other people who were diagnosed who did get pushed out of their jobs. And so we were really scared. And then for Skadden to offer Brian a job after he was diagnosed, I mean, that's everything. If he hadn't gotten that job, what would we have been able to do? We wouldn't have been able to launch IMA less. We wouldn't be surviving. I mean, people who make decisions in these moments, I just hope they know what they're doing, how powerful it is. Do you ever feel like just quitting, just like giving in? The most rebellious thing I've done is get in the car without my phone, without telling anyone where I was going. And I drove four blocks away and I sat in the car and listened to the radio. And I was like, just make them try to find me. And I'm like in like North suburban Chicago, like parked in front of someone's grassy lawn, like blasting Ani <gasps> DeFranco. Like, like what? Like, I just, okay, sure, Sandra. The best advice I've gotten in my life is not anything like yours this past year was from Glennon Doyle, which she said she quits every day. Mm. She said, I get up every morning and early in the morning, I care so much about everything and I want to help everyone. I want, And then by like five o'clock, she like lets herself quit. It's like a little bit of rebellion. I love it now, right? I'm like five o'clock. I'm like, I'm quitting. (laughs) But I don't know that there's ever the moment where you can quit. Yeah. Well, first of all, her book was the only book I read last year. (laughs) And so I do wake up and I'm like, you're a goddamn cheetah, Sandra. You are. (laughs) You certainly are. (laughs) I just have to, you know, cheer myself up. So yeah, it is hard. I am nervous when Brian's alone, right? Because... When he's eating, he could choke. And what if I'm not there? Like I've jumped in and I've performed the Heimlich. I've like reached down his throat to grab food. And like not everybody around him would or could do that in a moment. And so what if I go for a walk to like self-care, you know, take care of me. And then he dies because I decided that it was more important for me to quit, you know, or take time for me. So sometimes I, when I leave the house for a couple of minutes, I'm like, don't choke to death. Love you. I'll be really pissed if after all this effort, I leave the house for two minutes. Yes, I say that all the time. I'm like, I am working so hard to keep you alive. Brian Wallach, don't fuck it up. (laughs) I heard you say that before, that like, before you go to sleep at night, you're like, you're going to make this, right? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Yeah, we're going to live. We're going to live, right? And he's like, yeah, that's the plan. I'm like, no, no, no. But it's going to happen, right? No pressure, right? (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. It's a really low stakes situation. Oh, my 
God, Sandra, I just cannot believe. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Ah. But one thing that I have noticed about you is like, you know, you look exhausted. You look so wise and not scared of anything. Like, do you feel different about yourself now? Do you feel like you trust yourself more or like yourself more for as much as you've lost? I mean, I haven't gone through you know, a fraction of what you have, but I feel like a different, better, wiser person than when we worked together in the White House, you know, like these trials do for the right people. And I think this is true of you. They sort of refine your qualities, don't change you, but make you more essentially yourself. Yeah, I think that's true. I really like myself now. I wish I had liked myself sooner. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like yourself more now? I do. I do. I'm proud of myself. I am. I'm like, okay, you're still standing, girl. Like, All right, time to pay some bills. When we're back, we're going to talk to Sandra about what she hopes changes in the world of politics, science, and our individual mindsets to help patients and their caregivers. That's next on Just Something About Her with Sandra Apervaya. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with my friend, Sandra Apravaya. So right after Brian was diagnosed with ALS, you started the organization I Am ALS. And I understand that you were not happy about that. <laughs> I was like, what? More work? What are you talking about? Well, I mean, I have to agree with you. I wish I about this, that like, because you already founded two nonprofits. I've like worked in the nonprofit sector and new ones, and it's so hard. And the idea that like my husband has this terrible disease and you want me to spend my entire life thinking about it and forming a new nonprofit, which is so hard about this terrible disease. Yeah. No. Sounds awful. No. (laughs) There can be no respite, Sandra. There can be no respite in your life. (laughs) But it is, I have to say. Yeah. Like, what a difference it's made. The website is fantastic. And you're just, your message, and it's so good because you're a good communicator, is like upbeat and optimistic and empowering and people can make a difference. And it's all true. Yeah. It's like, big deal. I mean, just reflecting on the last two years, the fact that we knew who to call and how to organize ourselves to do powerful, like impactful legislative advocacy work. Yeah. This is something Sarah raised with me. She's like, you know, it's great that they did that, but there's this parallel with like women being well-suited to take care of people. Sandra, you're so well-suited for taking care of your husband. Sandra, you're so well-suited for starting a new organization because it's what you did before. And you're so well-suited for this because you know political communications and you're so well-suited for raising your children because you're a mom. Like, I mean, it's obviously too much, right? It is. And, you know, I'm not trying to like keep it up, right? So, (laughs) you know, I'm not like, oh, this is going well. Let's keep doing this. Um, I am trying really hard to figure out now that we're vaccinated, now that the COVID rate is declining, I'm trying to find a better setup for us with caregiving support, Mm -hmm. right? And now literally, you know, two months ago, our five-year-old started to go to kindergarten in person after so long away So she began to like be engaged outside of the home. And then literally on Monday this week, our three-year-old started camp and she hadn't been in any group setting since the day the pandemic started. 
until Monday morning where she decided that was her first day of school, she called it. And so for us, like there are these major milestones that we are finally reaching that we'd like crawled our way to, right? Like through the misery of COVID and ALS and the pandemic and just like, oh, we're like finally breathing occasionally and getting our three-year-old in camp, getting our five-year-old in school, trying to figure out caregiving for for Brian. And so it's not that I have any interest in doing all those things. (laughs) I mean, but a lot of women in the situation, there was no one else to do it. You know, someone has to do it. And it ends up being you. Yes. I do love with IMALS how hopeful it is and wondering if you're taking campaign tactics from the Obama era and trying to apply those lessons here, which really I think are just like human nature lessons, right? Like yeah, people that band together can make yeah. a difference. Absolutely. I think there's this really great example of it recently. You know, there was a patient, Brian Wayne, who, you know, has ALS. He wanted there to be a Lou Gehrig day with Major League Baseball. He and a few other ALS patients who were, you know, part of the IMALS platform, they started having meetings about it, started sending like MLB emails, presidents of different teams emails just out of the blue, use some connections, and it happened. Yeah, and it was huge. It was huge. It was trending seven on Twitter. I mean, and and it just happened where it started with one person and then two people and 10 people and 30 people. And then it it is now an annual Lou Gehrig Day that didn't exist before that exists now because it started with one person. And what people may not understand is like you think, oh, well, it's all the science and the science is so hard. So what people do doesn't matter. And it's like, no, actually, the science makes progress. But these are decisions that get made by humans and humans are affected by public pressure. <laughs> And awareness. And when you band together to make public pressure, you change the progression of this disease. Yes. And especially now that there are therapies in the pipeline. Yeah. You know, Brian and I just recently testified before Congress again with Congresswoman Delora, who was amazing. And, you know, we shared how there are these two therapies, Neurone and AMX0035, that are both sort of being held up in red tape, in bureaucracy with the FDA. And this really is the moment for us that the HIV community had where the therapies are starting to come online, but we are not getting access to them quickly enough. And so we need the FDA to operate differently as they did so with HIV and other urgent illnesses and just handle the access to therapies issue in more innovative, flexible, creative ways. And so patients are being loud about that as they should be. I mean, people are dying waiting. I've heard you talk about this before, and I I felt the same way with Alzheimer's drugs. It's like that there's like this elitist attitude about, you know, for patients with that have a hundred percent mortality rate of the disease. Like, we don't want to give them false hope. How about some hope? Give us a chance. Just give us a chance. If a drug is safe and there's a chance it could work, don't play God. Don't patronize. Don't bioethicist your way around. It is a human being's decision, right? I know what is behind door number two, okay? So if the drug is safe and there's some initial signs of potential efficacy, we as a country, as a society, need to just change the way we think about this. I mean, when you go under anesthesia, you sign some shit away, man. That's just like the most routine thing in the world. You are a patient. You accept responsibility. 
and you move on. That's why I was so glad to see the FDA did approve that Alzheimer's drug a few weeks ago. I was like, great. This is like a new trajectory, like understanding we don't know a lot. We don't know everything we would like to know, but it may help some people and we're going to let them decide. I know you've like focused mostly on ALS, but do you have thoughts about what could happen in Congress that would help caregiving? Well, I need to learn more about... No, you don't. You don't need to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I I do need to know more to answer that question well, but I will will say that, you know, even as I start to navigate caregiving for Brian, I'm learning that a caregiver has to be associated with an agency in some instances in order for your insurance to cover it. And actually, in a lot of cases families need the kind of person who's not at an agency for X, Y, or Z reason that actually is better if they don't have someone who's an RN because there are certain liabilities with RNs and RNs like can't always perform all the functions that an ALS patient and a family need. So there are all these problems, right, that put families in really rough situations where even if they are fortunate enough to have insurance, it may not cover the kind of support that they need. It's just untenable. across. I mean, like so much in the world, but like, it's just, this is like a true breaking point. I mean, it seems like at least with the pandemic, your situation, you know, at least in terms of the caregiving part can improve some that's probably happened to other people, but like, it's just, wow, this really revealed how broken it all is. And yeah, it's like for us, it was the pandemic that kept us from seeking you know, additional caregiving support. But, you know, it's not the pandemic that's going to solve the problem for so many people whose insurance doesn't cover it. Yeah. When you think about the old days and like our old universe, do you miss it? Do you wish for it? Are you mad about it? Like, how do you look at that? I had it so good. Yeah. (laughs) I had it so good. We had it so good. I found like when my sister got diagnosed, with Alzheimer's, which like there was no history of it in our family. I know there's no history of ALS in your family. And my older sister now will continue to worry about things and they'll look at me and like, I'm not worried about it. And they're like, how come you're not worked up about this? And I was like, anybody here think Dana is going to get Alzheimer's and die at a young age? No? Yeah. We didn't worry about that. (laughs) Right. Like, there's no point. It just happened out of the blue and like everybody handled it. You know, I find that, like, after something like that, you're like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. But, like, what you know is you're strong enough to get through any day, and all you have to do is be strong enough to get through the day you're in. Makes me think about the way Brian talks about losing his dad at a Mm -hmm. young age, and that rocked his world. And he just didn't worry and doesn't worry because he experienced in an instant his dad passing from a heart attack when he was in college and then lived with a different perspective after that. Well, say hi to Brian. I will. (laughs) I mean, just can't express how proud everybody is of both of you. It's just um, inspiring. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. I mean, talk about the endurance of the human spirit, right? Yeah. She manages to be angry, pissed off, real, strong, hopeful, 
all at the same time. And I just found it also just incredibly motivating. And I just, I have seen, just because we've been doing research and delving into this, like the impact that she and Brian are having. I was talking to somebody the other day whose sister passed away from ALS and said like how much help Brian and Sandra gave people and just like the determination for her to have him hang on is incredible. And also just what they want out of life, like to be able to grow old together. They're yeah. fine if Brian's in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, but how the two of them work harder than anyone I know in their daily life to achieve an outcome that should be granted. Right, right? that should be a given, yeah. And I appreciate so much how honest she is that she's just like, I don't like being a caregiver. My days are very difficult. They're very heartbreaking. Something that really resonated with me that we didn't get to ask her about was um, a previous podcast we had listened to. Yeah. She had said that when Brian was first diagnosed with ALS, she couldn't help but tell everyone that she was telling her cab driver who asked, how are you? And she was like, bad. My husband has ALS and, you know, everything's going downhill. And I've actually had a similar situation, you know, with my mom. There was a time when she wasn't doing very well and I was like telling everyone and I felt so guilty about it. Why did you feel guilty? I just felt like she's so, she doesn't tell anyone. She's like- She's private about it. She wouldn't want She's not even private. She likes to tell people about it, to advocate for research and for awareness and stuff like that. But it's more that she- She's like, I'm strong. You can't tell if you look at me that I have a chronic illness and I want to keep it that way. You know, yeah. she doesn't need to bother or burden anyone. And um, have people look at her differently. Exactly. And have her daughter and have her daughter worry about her all the and time. And have her daughter yeah. worry about exactly. But it, I did a lot of thinking about it when I was in that stage. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, like, A, a lot of these illnesses are invisible, or at least they're, you know, a slow progression. Sandra's least favorite word. And then a lot of the care that we're doing both mentally and, you know, behind closed doors are also invisible. And then a lot of that falls on women. And so, you know, maybe that is one of the things that we need to do is start talking about it more openly and that Sandra does so, so that these become not invisible illnesses and not invisible caretaking burdens. I think for the caregivers, because they are adjacent to this trauma all day, they think they can't complain because they aren't going to die and that they have to embrace all of these trite things about what an honor it is and what a privilege. And it it just takes that further away from any kind of understanding or actually giving these people support. Right. It just makes the caregiver just feel all that more isolated, I think. Yeah. I just think it's a Very really... high rates of depression and anxiety in caretakers, especially. But what I love is when I asked her, do you like yourself more now? I wasn't even sure if she would know what I was talking about, but she knew exactly what I was talking about. Like, she is so strong. Talk about living up to your potential. You know, I think she has like a confidence and belief in herself that she didn't have before. But I just love that one thing she's able to take from this is that she likes herself more. I know. That's what really made me very tearful during the interview. Right? (laughs) Yeah. This is another thing I wanted to bring up because it couldn't be expanded to pretty much everyone. But, you know, especially my mom, I feel an emotional responsibility to her too, because I feel like you know, as her daughter and the relationship that we have, because she doesn't like to burden a lot of people with her illness, I am a built-in person for her to do that with. But it's hard because it's painful and you want to make light out of situation, which is how my family always has handled it, you know, Mm -hmm. cracking jokes and keeping things light. But then you also have to honor the fact that there's a person in your life that's going through something so difficult you can't understand and make space for them to 
experience the sadness of that all. So that was all right. That was great for me to hear Sandra talk about how much it sucks and a reminder that there should be space to talk about how much it sucks. Yeah. So proud of her. I know, me too. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Sandra Apravaya for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.